The Guns of Shiloh, a story of the Great Western Campaign, by Joseph A. Altscheller, Volume 2 in the Civil War Series, produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com, read by John Bruzes. Chapter 3, The Telegraph Station. The darkness to the north was suddenly split apart by a solid sheet of flame. Dick by the light saw many men on horseback and others on foot, bridle rein over arm. It was well for the seven hundred boys that they had pressed themselves against the solid earth. A sheet of bullets swept toward them. Most passed over their heads, but many struck upon bones and flesh, and cries of pain rose from the lines of men lying along the railroad track. The seven hundred pulled trigger and fired at the flash. They fired so well that Dick could hear southern horses neighing with pain and struggling in the darkness. He felt sure that many men, too, had been hit. At least no charge came. The seven hundred shouted with exultation and, leaping to their feet, prepared to fire a second volley. But the swift command of their officers quickly put them down again. "'Don't forget the other Confederate column to the south of us!' whispered Whitley. They did not fire at first for fear their bullets would pass over our heads and strike their own comrades. For the same reason, they must have dropped back a little in order to avoid the fire of their friends. Their volley will come from an angle about midway between our left and rear. Just as he spoke the last words, the rifles flashed at the surmised angle, and again the bullets beat among the young troops or swept over their heads. A soldier was killed only a few feet from Dick. The boy picked up his rifle and ammunition and began to fire whenever he saw the flash of an opposing weapon. But the fire of both Confederate columns ceased in a minute or two, and not a shot nor the sound of a single order came out of the darkness. But Dick, with his ear to the soft earth, could hear the crush of hoofs in the mud, and with a peculiar ability to discern whence sound came, he knew that the force on the left and the rear was crossing the railroad track in order to join their comrades on the north. He whispered his knowledge to Whitley, who whispered back, It's the natural thing for them to do. They could not afford to fight on in the darkness with two separate forces. The two columns would soon be firing into each other. Colonel Newcomb now gave an order for the men to rise and follow the railroad track, but also to fire at the flash of rifles whenever a volley was poured upon them. He must not only beat off the southern attack, but also continue the journey to those points in the west where they were needed so sorely. Some of his men had been killed, and he was compelled to leave their bodies where they had fallen. Others were wounded, but without exception they were helped along by their comrades. Warner also secured a rifle, with which he fired occasionally, but he and Dick, despite the darkness, kept near to Colonel Newcomb, in order that they might deliver any orders that he should choose to give. Sergeant Whitley was close to them. Dick presently heard the rush of water. "'What is that?' he exclaimed. "'It's the little river that runs down the valley,' replied Warner. "'There's a slope here, and it comes like a torrent. A bridge, or rather trestle, is only a little further, and we've got to walk the ties if we reach the other side.' They'll make their heaviest rush there, I suppose, as beyond a doubt they are thoroughly acquainted with the ground. The northern troops left the track, which here ran along an embankment several feet high, and took shelter on its southern side. 
they now had an advantage for a while, as they fired from a breastwork upon their foes, who were in the open. But the darkness, lit only by the flashes of the rifles, kept the fire of both sides from being very destructive, the bullets being sent mainly at random. Dick dimly saw the trestle work ahead of them, and the roaring of the little river increased. He did not know how deep the water was, but he was sure that it could not be above his waist, as it was a small stream. An idea occurred to him, and he promptly communicated it to Colonel Newcomb. Suppose, sir, he said, that we ford the river just below the trestle. It will deceive them, and we'll be halfway across before they suspect the change. A good plan, Mr. Mason, said Colonel Newcomb. We'll try it. Word was quickly passed along the line that they should turn to the left as they approached the trestle, march swiftly down the slope, and dash into the stream. As fast as they reached the other side of the ford, the men should form upon the bank there, and with their rifles cover the passage of their comrades. The skeleton work of the trestle now rose more clearly into view. The rain had almost ceased, and faint rays of moonlight showed through the rifts where the clouds had broken apart. The boys distinctly heard the gurgling rush of waters, and they also saw the clear bluish surface of the mountain stream. The same quickening of light disclosed the southern force on their right flank and rear, only four or five hundred yards away. Dick's hasty glance backward lingered for a moment on a powerful man on a white horse, just in advance of the southern column. He saw this man raise his hand and then command the men to fire. He and twenty others under the impulse of excitement shouted to the regiment to drop down, and the northern lads did so. Most of the volley passed over their heads. Rising, they sent back a return discharge, and then the head of the columns rushed into the stream. Dick felt swift water whirling around him and tugging at his body, but it rose no higher than his waist, although foam and spray were dashed into his face. He heard all around him the splashing of his comrades and their murmurs of satisfaction. They realized now that they were not only able to retreat before a much superior force, but this same stream, when crossed, would form a barrier behind which they could fight two to one. The Confederate leader, whoever he might be, and Dick had no doubt that he was the redoubtable Turner Ashby, also appreciated the full facts, and he drove his whole force straight at the regiment. It was well for the young troops that part of them were already across, and under the skillful leadership of Colonel Newcomb, Major Hertford, and three or four old regular army sergeants, of whom the best was Whitley, they were already forming in line of battle. Kneel, shouted the colonel, and fire over the heads of your comrades at the enemy. The light was still growing brighter. The rain came only in slight flurries. The clouds were trooping off toward the northeast, and the moon was out. Dick clearly saw the black mass of the southern horsemen wheeling down upon them. At least three hundred of the regiment were now upon the bank, and, with fairly steady aim, they poured a heavy volley into the massed ranks of their foe. Dick saw horses fall, while others dashed away riderless. But the southern line wavered only for a moment, and then came in again with many shouts. There were also dismounted men on either flank, who knelt and maintained a heavy fire upon the defenders. The lads in blue were suffering many wounds, but a line of trees and underbrush on the western shore helped them. Lying there partly protected, 
They loaded and pulled trigger as fast as they could, while the rest of their comrades emerged dripping from the stream to join them. The Confederates, brave as they were, had no choice but to give ground against such strong defense, and the minor colonel, despite his reserve and his middle years, gave vent to his exultation. We can hold this line forever, he exclaimed to his aides. It's one thing to charge us in the open, but it's quite another to get at us across a deep and rushing stream. Major Hertford, take part of the men to the other side of the railroad track and drive back any attempt at crossing there. Lieutenant Mason, you and Lieutenant Warner go ahead and see what has become of the train. You can get back here in plenty time for more fighting. Dick and Warner hurried forward, following the line of the railroad. Their blood was up, and they did not like to leave the defense of the river, but orders must be obeyed. As they ran down the railroad track, a man came forward swinging a lantern, and they saw the tall, gaunt figure of Canby, the chief engineer. Behind him, the train stretched away in the darkness. "'I guess that our men have forded the river and are holding the bank,' said Canby. "'Do they need the train crew back here to help?' He spoke with husky eagerness. Dick knew that he was longing to be in the middle of the fight, but that his duty kept him with the train. Now, he replied, the river bank and the road along its shore give us a great position for defense, and I know that we can hold it. Colonel Newcomb did not say so, but perhaps you'd better bring the train back nearer us. It's not our object to stay in this valley and fight, but to go into the west. Is all clear ahead? No enemies there. Some of the brakemen have gone a mile or two, and they say the track hasn't been touched. You tell Colonel Newcomb that I'm bringing the train right down to the battle line. Dick and Warner returned quickly to Colonel Newcomb, who appreciated Canby's courage and presence of mind. As the train approached, the four cannon were unloaded from the trucks and swept the further shore with shell and shrapnel. After a scattered fire, the southern force withdrew some distance, where it halted, apparently undecided. The clouds rolled up again, the feeble moon disappeared, and the river sank into the dark. "'May I make a suggestion, Colonel Newcomb?' said Major Hertford. "'Certainly.' "'The enemy will probably seek an undefended ford much higher up, cross under cover of the new darkness, and attack us in heavy force on the flank. Suppose that we get aboard the train at once, cannon and all, and leave them far behind.' "'Excellent. If the darkness covers their movements,' It also covers ours. Load the train as fast as possible, and see that no wounded are left behind. He gave rapid orders to all his officers and aides, and in fifteen minutes the troops were aboard the train again. The cannon were lifted upon the trucks, Canby and his assistants had all steam up, and the train, with its usual rattle and roar, resumed its flight into the west. Dick and Warner were in the first coach near Colonel Newcomb, ready for any commands that he might give. Both had come through the defense of the ford without injury, although a bullet had gone through Dick's coat without touching the skin. Sergeant Whitley, too, was unharmed, but the regiment had suffered. More than twenty dead were left in the valley for the enemy to bury. Despite all the commands and efforts of the officers, there was much excited talk in the train. Boys were binding up wounds of other boys and were condoling with them but on the whole they were exultant. Youth did not realize the loss of those who had been with them so little. Scattered exclamations came to Dick. We beat him off that time, and we can do it again. Lucky, though, we had that little river before us. 
Guess they'd have rode us right down with their horses if it hadn't been for the stream and its banks. Ouch! Don't draw that bandage so tight on my arm. It ain't nothing but a flesh wound. I hate a battle in the dark. Give me the good sunshine where you can see what's going on. My God, that you, Bill. I'm tremendous glad to see you. I thought you was lying still back there in the grass. Dick said nothing. He was in a seat next to the window, and his face was pressed against the rain-marked pane. The rifle that he had picked up and used so well was still clutched, grimed with smoke, in his hands. The train had not yet got up speed. He caught glimpses of the river behind which they had fought, and which had served them so well as a barrier. In fact, he knew that it had saved them. But they had beaten off the enemy. The pulses in his temples still throbbed from exertion and excitement, but his heart beat exultantly. The bitterness of Bull Run was deep, and it had lasted long, but here they were the victors. The speed of the train increased, and Dick knew that they were safe from further attack. They were still running among the mountains, clad heavily in the forest, but a meeting with a second southern force was beyond probability. The first had made a quick raid on information supplied by spies in Washington, but it had failed, and the way was now clear. Ample food was served somewhat late to the whole regiment. The last wounds were bound up, and Dick, having put aside the rifle, fell asleep at last. His head lay against the window, and he slept heavily all through the night. Warner, in the next seat, slept in the same way. But the wise old sergeant just across the aisle remained awake much longer. He was summing up, and he concluded that the seven hundred lads had done well. They were raw, but they were being whipped into shape. He smiled a little grimly as the unspoken words, whipped into shape, rose to his lips. The veteran of many an Indian battle foresaw something vastly greater than anything that had occurred on the plains. Whipped into shape? Why, in the mighty war that was gathering, along a front of two thousand miles, no soldier could escape being whipped into shape or being whipped out of it. But the sergeant's own eyes closed after a while, and he too slept the sleep of utter mental and physical exhaustion. The train rumbled on, the faithful Canby in the first engine aware of his great responsibility, and equal to it. Not a wink of sleep for him that night. The darkness had lightened somewhat more. The black of the skies had turned to a dusky blue, and the bolder stars were out. He could always see the shining rails three or four hundred yards ahead, and he sent his train steadily forward at full speed, winding among the gorges and rattling over the trestles. The silent mountains gave back every sound in dying echoes, but Canby paid no heed to them. His eyes were always on the track ahead, and he too was exultant. He had brought the regiment through, and while it was on the train, his responsibility was not inferior to that of Colonel Newcomb. When Dick awoke, bright light was pouring in at the car windows, but the car was cold and his body was stiff and sore. His military overcoat had been thrown over him in the night, and Warner had been covered in the same way. They did not know that Sergeant Whitley had done that thoughtful act. Dick stretched himself and drew deep breaths. Warm youth soon sent the blood flowing in a full tide through his veins, and the stiffness and soreness departed. He saw through the window that they were still running among the mountains, but they did not seem to be so high here as they were at the river by which they had fought in the night. 
He knew from his geography and his calculation of time that they must be far into that part of Virginia, which is now West Virginia. There was no rain now, at least where the train was running, but the sun had risen on a cold world. Far up on the highest peaks, he saw a fine white mist, which he believed to be falling snow. Obviously, it was winter here, and putting on the big military coat, he drew it tightly about him. Others in the coach were waking up, and some of them, grown feverish with their wounds, were moving restlessly on their seats, where they lay protected by the blankets of their fellows. Dick now and then saw a cabin nestling in the lee of a hill, with the blue smoke rising from its chimney into the clear, wintry air, and small and poor as they were, they gave him a singular sense of peace and comfort. His mind felt for a few moments a strong reaction from war and its terrors, but the impulse and the strong purpose that bore him on soon came back. The train rushed through a pass and entered a sheltered valley a mile or two wide and eight or ten miles long. A large creek ran through it, and the train stopped at a village on its banks. The whole population of the village and all the farmers of the valley were there to meet them. It was a Union Valley, and by some system of mountain telegraphy, although there were no telegraph wires, news of the battle at the ford had preceded the train. "'Come, lads,' said Colonel Newcomb to his staff. "'Out with you. We're among friends here.' Dick and Warner were glad enough to leave the train. The air, cold as it was, was like the breath of heaven on their faces, and the cheers of the people were like the trump of fame in their ears. Pretty girls with their faces in red hoods or red comforters were there with food and smoking coffee. Medicines for the wounded, as much as the villagers could supply, had been brought to the train, and places were already made for those hurt too badly to go on with the expedition. The whole cheerful scene, with its life and movement, the sight of new faces and the sound of many voices had a wonderful effect upon young Dick Mason. He had a marvelously sensitive temperament, a direct inheritance from his famous border ancestor, Paul Cotter. Things were always vivid to him. Either they glowed with color, or they were hueless and dead. This morning the long strain of the night in its battle was relaxed completely. The grass in the valley was brown with frost, and the trees were shorn of their leaves by the winter winds. But to Dick it was the finest village that he had ever seen, and these were the friendliest people in the world. He drank a cup of hot coffee handed to him by the stalwart wife of a farmer, and then, when she insisted, drank another. "'You're young to be fighting,' she said sympathetically. "'We all are,' said Dick with a glance at the regiment. "'But however we may fight, you'll never find anybody attacking a breakfast with more valor and spirit than we do.' She looked at the long line of lads, drinking coffee and eating ham, bacon, eggs, and hot biscuits, and smiled. "'I reckon you tell the truth, young feller,' she said, "'but it's good to see him go at it.' She passed on to help the others, and Dick, summoned by Colonel Newcomb, went into a little railroad and telegraph station. The telegraph wires had been cut behind them, but ten miles across the mountains the spur of another railroad touched a valley. The second railroad looped toward the north, and it was absolutely sure that it was beyond the reach of southern raiders. Colonel Newcomb wished to send a message to the Secretary of War and the President, telling of the night's events and his triumphant passage through the ordeal. These circumstances might make them wish to change his orders, 
and at any rate the commander of the regiment wished to be sure of what he was doing. "'You're a Kentuckian and a good horseman,' said Colonel Newcomb to Dick. "'The villagers have sent me a trusty man, one Bill Petty, as a guide. "'Take Sergeant Whitley, and you three go to the station. "'I've already written my dispatches, and I put them in your care. "'Have them sent at once, and if necessary, wait four hours for an answer. "'If it comes, ride back as fast as you can. "'The horses are ready, and I rely on you.' "'Thank you, sir. I'll do my best,' said Dick who deeply appreciated the colonel's confidence. He wasted no time in words, but went at once to Sergeant Whitley, who was ready in five minutes. Warner, who heard of the mission, was disappointed because he was not going to. But he was philosophical. I've made a close calculation, he said, and I have demonstrated to my own satisfaction that our opportunities are 60% energy and ability, 20% manners, and 20% chance. In this case, chance, which made the colonel better acquainted with you than with me, was in your favor. We won't discuss the other 80%, because this 20 is enough. Besides, it looks pretty cold on the mountains, and it's fine here in the village. But luck with you, Dick. He gave his comrade's hand a strong grasp, and walked away toward the little square of the village, where the troops were encamped for the present. Dick sprang upon a horse, which Bill Petty was holding for him. Whitley was already up, and the three rode swiftly toward a blue line which marked a cleft between the two ridges. Dick first observed their guide. Bill Petty was a short but very stout man, clad in a suit of homemade blue jeans, the trousers of which were thrust into high boots with red tops. A heavy shawl of dark red was wrapped around his shoulders, and beneath his broad-brimmed hat a red woolen comforter covered his ears, cheeks, and chin. His thick hair and a thick beard clothing his entire face were a flaming red. The whole effect of the man was somewhat startling, but when he saw Dick looking at him in curiosity, his mouth opened wide in a grin of extreme good nature. "'I guess you think I'm right red,' he said. "'Well, I am. And as you see, I always dress to suit my complexion. Guess I'll warm up the road some on a winter day like this.' "'Would you mind my calling you Red Blaze?' "'asked Sergeant Whitley gravely. "'Not at all, not at all. "'I'd like it. "'I guess it's sort of pictorial and imaginative, "'like them knights of old who had fancy names "'cordoned to their qualities. "'People round here are pretty plain, "'and they've never called me nothing but Bill. "'Red Blaze she is. "'And Blaze for short. "'Well then, Blaze, what kind of road is this "'that we're going to be riding on? "'Depends on the kind of weather in which you ask the question.' As it's the first edge of winter here in the mountains, though it ain't quite come in the lowlands, and as it's rained a lot in the last week, I reckon you'll find it bad. Maybe our horses will go down in the road to their knees, but I guess they won't sink up to their bodies. They may stumble and throw us, but as we'll hit in soft mud, it ain't likely to hurt us. It may rain hard, cause I see the clouds heaping up there in the west, and if it rains, the cold may then freeze a skim of ice over the road on which we could slip and break our necks, horses and all. Then there are some cliffs close to the road. If we was to slip on them their skim of ice, which we've reckoned might come, then maybe we'd go over one of them cliffs and drop a hundred feet or so right swift. If it was soft mud down below, we might not get hurt mortal. But it ain't soft mud. We'd hit right in the middle of sharp, hard rocks, 
And if a gang of rebel sharpshooters has wandered up here, they may see us and chase us way off into the mountains, where we'd break our necks falling off the ridges or freeze to death or starve to death. Whitley stared at him. Blaze, he exclaimed. What kind of man are you anyway? Me? I'm the happiest man in the valley. When people are low down, they come and talk to me to get cheered up. I always lay the worst before you first, and then shove it out of the way. None of them things I was conjuring up is going to happen. I was just telling you of the things you was going to escape, and now you'll feel good, knowing what dangers you have passed before they happened. Dick laughed. He liked this intensely red man with his round face and twinkling eyes. He saw, too, that the mountaineer was a fine horseman, and as he carried a long, slender-barreled rifle over his shoulder, while a double-barreled pistol was thrust in his belt, it was likely that he would prove a formidable enemy to any who sought to stop him. "'Perhaps your way is wise,' said the boy. "'You begin with the bad and end with the good. "'What is the name of this place to which we are going?' "'Hubbard. "'There was a pioneer who fit the Indians in here in early times. "'I never heard that he got much, except a town named after him. "'But Hubbard is a right pert little place, "'with a bank, two stores, three churches, "'and nigh on to two hundred people.' Are you wrapped up well, Mr. Mason? Because it's going to be cold in the mountains. Dick wore heavy boots and a long, heavy military coat, which fell below his knees and which also had a high collar protecting his ears. He was provided also with heavy buckskin gloves. The sergeant was clad similarly. I think I'm clothed against any amount of cold, he replied. Well, you need to be, said Petty, because the pass through which we're going is at least 1,500 feet above Townsville. That's our village, and I reckon it's just about as high over Hubbard. Them fifteen hundred feet make a powerful difference in climate, as you'll soon find out. It's not only colder there, but the winds are always blowing hard through the pass. Just look back at Townsville. Ain't she fine and neat down there in the valley, beside that clear creek which higher up in the mountains is full of the juiciest and sweetest trout that man ever stuck a tooth into? Dick saw that Petty was talkative, but he did not mind. In fact, both he and Whitley liked the man's joyous and unbroken run of chatter. He turned in his saddle and looked back, following the stout man's pointing finger. Townsville, though but a little mountain town built mainly of logs, was indeed a jewel, softened and with a silver sheen thrown over it by the mountain air, which was misty that morning. He dimly saw the long black line of the train standing on the track, and here and there warm rings of smoke rose from the chimneys and floated up into the heavens where they were lost. He thought he could detect little figures moving beside the train, and he knew that they must be those of his comrades. He felt for a moment a sense of loneliness. He had not known these lads long, but the battle had bound them firmly together. They had been comrades in danger, and that made them comrades as long as they lived. Greatest town in the world, said Petty, waving toward it a huge hand, encased in a thin yarn glove. I've traveled from it as much as fifty miles in every direction, north, south, east, and west, and I ain't never seen its match. I reckon I'm something of a traveler, but every time I come back to Townsville, I think all the more of it, seeing how much better it is than anything else. Dick glanced at the mountaineer and saw that there could be no doubt of his sincerity. "'You're a lucky man, Mr. Petty,' he said, "'to live in the finest place in the world. "'Yes, if I don't get drug off to the war, 
I'm not hankering for fighting, and I don't know much what the war's about, though I'm for the Union, first to last, and that's the way most of the people bout here feel. Turn your heads again, friends, and take another look at Townsville. Dick and Whitley glanced back and saw only the blank gray wall of the mountain. Petty laughed. He was the finest laugher that Dick had ever heard. The laugh did not merely come from the mouth. It also exuded, pouring out through every pore. It was rolling, and so strong that Petty not only shook with it, but his horse seemed to shake also. It was mellow, too, with an organ note that comes of a mighty lung and throat, and of pure air breathed all the year round. "'Thought I'd get the joke on you,' he said, when he stopped laughing. "'The road's been slanting into the mountains, without you knowing it, "'and Townsville is cut off by the cliffs. "'You'll find it getting wilder now, "'till we start down the slope on the other side. "'Lucky our horses are strong, "'cause the mud is deeper than I thought it would be.' "'It was not really a road that they were following, "'merely a path, and the going was painful. "'Under Petty's instructions, "'they stopped their mounts now and then for a rest, "'and a mile further on they began to feel a rising wind.' "'It's the wind that I told you of,' said Petty. "'It's sucked through six or seven miles of pass, "'and it will blow straight in our faces all the way. "'As we'll be going up for a long distance, "'you'll find it growing colder, too. "'But you've got to remember that after you pass them cold winds "'and you go down the slope, "'you'll strike another warm little valley, "'the one in which Hubbard is laying so neat and so smug.' "'Dick had already noticed the increasing coldness,' and so had the sergeant. Whitley, from his long experience on the plains, had the keenest kind of eye for any climatic changes. He noticed with some apprehension that the higher peaks were clothed in thick, cold fog, but he said nothing to the brave boy whom he had grown to love like a son. But both he and Dick drew their heavy coats closer and were thankful for the buckskin gloves, without which their hands would have stiffened on the reins. Now they rode in silence, with their heads bent well forward, because the wind was becoming fiercer and fiercer. Over the peaks the fogs were growing thicker and darker, and after a while the sharp edge of the wind was wet with rain. It stung their faces, and they drew their hat brims lower and their coat collars higher to protect themselves from such a cutting blast. "'Told you we might have trouble,' called Petty cheerfully. But if you ride on through trouble, you'll leave trouble behind. Nor this ain't nothing either to what we can expect before we get to the top of the pass. Curious what a powerful lot human beings can stand when they make up their minds to it. Are the horses well shod? asked Whitley. Best shod in the world, cause I done it myself. That's my trade, blacksmith, and I'm a good one if I say it. I heard before we started that you had been a soldier in the West. I suppose that you had to look mighty close to your horses then. Man couldn't afford to be riding a horse made lame by bad shoeing when ten thousand yelling Sioux or Blackfeet was after him. No, you couldn't, replied the sergeant. Out there you had to watch every detail. That's one of the things that fighting Indians taught me. You had to be watching all the time, and I reckon the training will be of value in this war. Are we mighty near to the top of the pass, Mr. Petty? Got two or three miles yet. Slope is steeper on the other side. We rise a lot more before we hit the top. The wind grew stronger with every rod they ascended, and the horses began to pant with their severe exertions. 
At Petty's suggestion, the three riders dismounted and walked for a while, leading their horses. The rain turned to a fine hail and stung their faces. Had it not been for his two good comrades, Dick would have found his situation inexpressibly lonely and dreary. The heavy fog now enveloped all the peaks and ridges and filled every valley and chasm. He could see only fifteen or twenty yards ahead along the muddy path, and the fine hail, which gave every promise of becoming a storm of sleet, stung continually. The wind confined in the narrow gorge also uttered a hideous shrieking and moaning. "'Tests your nerve!' shouted Petty to Dick. "'There are hard things besides battles to stand, and this is going to be one of the hard ones. But if you go through it all right, you can go through any number of the same kind all right, too.' Likely, the sleet will be so thick that it will make a sheet of slippery ice for us coming back. Now, horses that ain't got cocks on their shoes are pretty sure to slip and fall, breaking a leg or two, and maybe breaking the necks of their riders. Dick looked at him with some amazement. Despite his announcement of dire disaster, the man's eyes twinkled merrily, and the round red outline of his bushy head in the scarlet comforter made a cheerful blaze. It's just as I told you, said Petty, meeting the boy's look. Without cocks on their shoes, our horses, pretty sure, will slip on the ice and break themselves up, or fall down a cliff and break themselves up more. Then why in thunder, Blaze, exclaimed Whitley, did we start without cocks on the shoes of our horses? Red Blaze broke into a deep, mellow laugh, starting from the bottom of his diaphragm, swelling as it passed through his chest, swelling again as it passed through throat and mouth, and bursting upon the open air in a mighty diapason that rose cheerfully above the shrieking and moaning of the wind. "'We didn't start without him,' he replied. "'The twelve feet of these three horses have on them the finest cocked shoes in all the mountains. I put them on myself, beginning the job this morning before you was awake. Your colonel, on the advice of the people of Townsville, who know me as one of its leading and trusted citizens, having selected me as the guide of this trip.' I was just telling you what would happen to you if I didn't justify the confidence of the people of Townsville. I allow, Red Blaze, said the sergeant with confidence, that you ain't no fool and that you're looking out for our best interests. Lead on. Red Blaze's mellow and pleased laugh rose once more above the whistling of the wind. You can ride again now, boys, he said. The horses are pretty well rested. They resumed the saddle gladly and now mounted toward the crest of the pass. The sleet turned to snow, which was a relief to their faces, and Dick, with the constant beating of wind and snow, began to feel a certain physical exhilaration. He realized the truth of Red Blaze's assertion that if you stiffen your back and push your way through troubles, you leave troubles behind. They rode now in silence for quite a while, and then Red Blaze suddenly announced, We're at the top, boys. <laughs> 